From time to time, I go on what I like to call magical musical binges, where I pick an artist that I just listen to death. And this has kind of happened for a while. It was 1975, actually for about a year. And I think I'm over that now. Uh, Then it quickly transferred to Led Zeppelin. Any Led Zeppelin fans here? Okay, classic rock. Uh, Recently, I moved through Yes, 90125. And now I have entered kind of into something that I have, that has been a, uh, let's say, kind of always on the, on the, not the back burner, but the middle burner. You know, the one that you used to keep pancakes warm. This artist that I've been listening to is U2. Okay, anyone know U2 out here? Your dads all listen to U2, right? And so I grew up listening to U2, and, and now it's kind of cool to listen to U2, right? Because you go back, 1987, <laughs> Joshua Tree, and you can show up places and talk about the Joshua Tree. Uh, but if you want a really good one, what you can do is you can talk about the album and say, yeah, Joshua Tree's great. But I'm more of an octune baby kind of person. And so you can, you can be... If you're ever with a bunch of 40-year-old men and you're trying to start a conversation, just start talking about you two and see what happens. All right? So uh, as I was listening on my musical magical bench, listening to Octune Baby, there was a song that was played... And uh, these are the lyrics. I'm going to read you these lyrics, okay? It read, haven't seen you in quite a while. I was down the hold just passing time. Last time we met was a low-lit room. We were close, as close together as a bride and groom. We ate the food. We drank the wine. Everybody having a good time except you. You were talking about the end of the world. And then the next verse is, I took the money, I spiked your drink. You miss too much these days to stop to think. You lead me on with those innocent eyes. You know I love the element of surprise. In the garden, I was playing the tart. I kissed your lips and broke your heart. You, you were acting like it was the end of the world. And as I'm listening to this song, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, this is about Judas from the Bible, Judas Iscariot. And, and the story of betrayal that happens when he betrays Jesus in the garden. And so I'm listening to this. I'm like, I'm like my goodness, Bono, well done. And Bono, if you're listening, and I know you are, um, <laughs> great, great lyrics there. And so this got me on another trail, on a magical YouTube binge, where I then looked at the top 10 greatest betrayals in history. And do you know who appears on this list? Judas which then led me to the top 10 uh, betrayals in movie history. (laughs) Uh, On that list was Lando betraying Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back, and also Judas in Passion of the Christ. So uh, (laughs) Judas goes down as one of the uh, biggest dirtbags that the world has ever seen uh, throughout history. And so this is, in the Western world, it's hard to go without hearing the betrayal of Judas. And and you hear and just know the story. So tonight, we're going to look at this story But there's actually a few betrayals that happen here that I want to look at. And so this evening, we're going to look at three ways that we betrayed Jesus. And the three ways are this. An overconfidence in ability, laziness, or we trade Jesus for something else. We have an overconfidence in our ability, laziness, or we trade Jesus for something else. Now, as I'm talking here, I'm actually going to be talking about Judas. I'm going to be talking about Peter as well. I'm going to be talking about the other disciples. 
these men, all of them, were better Christians than you or I. They walked with Jesus, yet all of them betrayed him in his time of need. And what is it that causes them to do this? And what is it, what can we learn from them that causes us to betray Jesus? And how do we not do that? So this evening, we're going to look at these three things. So let's start with the first one, an overconfidence in ability. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 26, verse 30 to 35. You might remember at the, when Andy was preaching last week, he was talking about communion, the final last supper that happens when Jesus is sitting with all his disciples, they're together, and he begins to talk about his death and talk about how people are going to betray him and how this is all going to go bad. And they're sitting and having this, this last meal that Jesus is having. And he's talking, you know, it's, it's talking about Passover and all of, all of that, right? The Jewish tradition of Passover. So at, at this meal, and they finish the meal, and they sing a hymn. And so this is where we pick up as they're now done at the house, done at the upper room. Matthew 26, 30 reads like this. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. So now they've left Jerusalem. They're going out to the Mount of Olives. And as they arrived there, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same Thing. This is an interesting scene here. Uh, throughout the scriptures, if you read the Gospels, you'll always find that Peter's super zealous. He is a, a real uh, passionate guy. He's always kind of saying things, taking things a little bit too far, I always imagine. Uh, but Peter is enormously zealous, and he takes this moment to show how zealous he is. He basically, um, if, if you understand some of the background of Judaism... When Jesus is talking and saying these things, and, and he's saying, well, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to suffer and die in this way. What, what, what Peter is thinking in the back of his mind is, no, 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 that, that doesn't happen, Jesus. Why doesn't that happen? Well, because you're going to be this massive military leader, the Messiah, who's going to come and deliver us from the oppression that we are currently under. And that oppression right now is the Romans. And so this kind of spirit lifts up in Peter. He says, I'm, I'm ready for the revolution. I'm ready for the revolution. So even if all of them deny you, Jesus, I'm not going to because I'm going to go to the death for this revolution. That's how committed I am to this. I'm ready to go and die for that cause. And notice how he says it, right? I will never fail. I will never fail. But all these other guys that I've been with, Jesus, you can imagine he takes them aside. Like James and John, they're losers, all right? I'm the real deal. All right, I'm Peter. You know me, Peter. And he says, I'm not, I'm not, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to fail you. And of course, Jesus rebukes him and says, no, you will fail me. And Peter, again, doubles down. Like, even if they walk away, I will not fail. And they do. And he does. Peter's saying, I know how I ought to live. And I know how they ought to live. And I'm going to live up to it. Because I have the ability to do so. I have the, the, the 
the right temperament, the right zealousness to accomplish that which you have come to do, Jesus, in bringing this revolution, in bringing the, the delivering us from the oppression of the Romans. There's an interesting poem because we know how, we know how Peter ends this, right? We're looking ahead. We know that Jesus predicts it. He's going to deny him three times. And if you know the story of Peter, he denies him three times. There's an interesting poem written that uh, was written by a pastor of a very large church in the United States. And I'm going to read it to you, but there's a catch at the end of the, um, at the, end of the poem. It's a really, it's, it's, it's probably more than a poem. It's actually like a, like a pump-up speech, okay? So I'm going to read it to you. I don't have it here, so I'm going to be reading all weird off the back screen because I forgot to print off the speech like an idiot, but I'll read off here. It reads, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. No longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by the presence I now live by presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. Alliteration, come on. I won't give up, back up, let up, shut up until I preached up, Freddie, prayed up, Paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he comes, until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And the twist? Like, it's inspiring, right? The twist is this very pastor, a few years later, lost his church over allegations of, uh, of molesting 17 young boys in his congregation. Overconfidence there. You can talk a big game, can't you? You got to live up to that game. And what you see here, the fall of Peter, 
is this overconfidence in his ability. I will never fail. I'm not like those other disciples. The point is, Peter thinks that there's no way he will abandon the faith. There is an absolutely no way that he will ever walk away until it happens. You're right, you know the story. It comes, Peter denies him three times. He's there watching Jesus before uh, getting beaten, but also being questioned, and they begin to ask him, Are you, do you know him? Do you know him? And he denies it three times. And on the third time, the, the, the records show that Jesus actually looks right at him. And I don't know if Jesus heard the conversation, but we know he's the God-man, and so there's this moment where he senses it, boom, looks right at Peter. Could you imagine that? And so just by way of application, the, the route that I think this text is trying to show us, what Matthew is trying to show us, is having overconfidence, like Peter, is one of the ways that we can actually betray Christ because there's not a humbleness to it. You notice how Peter is kind of saying, I have such a confidence in my abilities. But he's not saying, I, I have... Like, he, he, he thinks that he, he's perfect, right? But you and I know that we are not perfect. In fact, we are sinners. We, are, we live in a fallen world of sin, and at every moment, sin is creeping at the door, and, and there's a battle, there's a fight that goes on. There's an interesting prayer that Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, wrote uh, a couple hundred years before. And he used to pray this. He would say, Lord God, you've placed me in your church. You know how unsuitable I am. Were it not for your guidance, I would long since have brought everything to destruction. I read that and then I can relate to that because at every moment, um, I need the Lord's strength. Like I can stand up here and I can just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. But if I don't have the Lord walking with me and leading me, and if I'm not pressing into him humbly, all of this is just me putting on a show and betraying Christ. I think what this passage is trying to teach us is there needs to be a humbleness and a security in who we are. We know that we are saved yet we are still sinners. And so there's that dynamic that happens. Humbleness. You want to betray Jesus? Be overconfident in your ability. Here's the second one. Laziness. Lack of discipline or being lethargic. We see here an example of that. They go to Gethsemane, right? They've been at the Mount of Olives and now they're moving into this garden. Look with me at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And when he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. All right, so he, he takes the, the, the 12 disciples, stay here. Then he says something else. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, the significance of Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, uh, the two sons of Zebedee are James and John. And Peter is the third of what the scholars will call this inner circle that Jesus had. If you remember 
in earlier in, in the scriptures, earlier in the New Testament, there's a moment where the transfiguration happens, where Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up to the mountain with him. And there, Jesus turns into this kind of, this, this, this amazing thing happens where he transfigures into literally God himself. And at this time is Moses and Abraham, and, and they're like, all the disciples are seeing this and can't understand what's going on. They're losing their mind, and, and you hear God the Father say, this is my son who I love, declaring that Jesus Christ is in fact God. So they see Jesus in this elevated God-like state. The contrast that Matthew shows here is Jesus in his most humane state. Never is there more humanity seen in Jesus Christ in these next few moments. And what he wants, as his soul is sorrowful and troubled, he's basically just saying to his disciples, I just need you nearby. I just need my friends. From what, I, from what I'm about to do, I need you guys here with me. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. Now, this is one of the, you, you will see people fall at Jesus' feet, right, lying prostrate. Now, that's a, that's a sign of complete and total surrender and just being completely lost and totally crushed by what you're going through. And people would do that and come to Jesus' feet. In this moment, in Jesus' humane moment, this is actually flipped. Jesus is now lying flat, completely flat on his face. And you got to imagine Peter, James, and John. This is the first time they've seen that. Man, Jesus is upset. Man, he is really going through something. We should try and pray and stay with him here. Jesus prays, my father, if it is possible that you may take this cup, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Take this cup, not as I will, but not as you will. What is the cup that he's talking about? The cup that he's talking about is the wrath of God. Now fast, re rewind back to the Last Supper where they take the first communion, right? They take the bread and they take the wine. And he says, this is the cup of, of, that, of my covenant, the blood of my covenant. And he's, he's saying, this cup represents the, like, the, the cup of wrath that is gonna be poured out on my body. Wrath emotionally, spiritually, and physically. This cup of judgment that's now gonna be actually just poured out on me. And so you remember that they are doing this at Passover. And what is Passover? It's, it's a reference back and it's a remembering of the Passover when in Egypt, when God is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh, and it's a battle of gods, right? Where you have Yahweh and you have Pharaoh who is also the God of Egypt. And they go 10 rounds. And Pharaoh wants to give up, and God says, no, I'm going to harden your heart. And Pharaoh says, yeah, you're right. I, I hate you, God. And they, ha they keep having this, this fight and this battle. It gets to one of the last rounds where God commands his people. He says, okay, if you are my people, what you're going to do is you're going to take the blood of the lamb, you're going to paint it over your doorpost, and I will pass over you. The angel of death will not come and take your firstborn son. And that's what they do. And, of course, the final... Uh, strike against Egypt there is the death of the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn son, the heir to his kingdom. So what do you see there? You see actually a god take out a mini-god, right? Yahweh is demonstrating his power and, his, and his, his glory over all the other gods. And so they are taught to remember this and remember this with Passover. What Jesus is saying in this moment is, God's not going to pass over me. 
In fact, it's going to be my blood is the one who's going to be spilled. And so as he's lying here, as he's completely destroyed, he's calling out to God in the most intense way. I don't know if you've ever, like, had one of these moments where you're just, like, so destroyed inside that you're screaming into your pillow, asking to be delivered from something. I remember uh, in my second year of college, I did not want to play football. I, I played football all the way through high school, and then the goal was to go play college football and I got to this college, and we had the worst team in the nation, and we hadn't won a game in 13 years. And they, they don't, of course, don't tell you that. They say, you know, our team's going to get better, and we're just doing, we're like, we're on the rebuild. It's like, you can't rebuild for 13 years. <laughs> so anyways, we got new coaches after a terrible losing season, which was honestly pretty funny. But this new year, they brought in these new coaches, and I just really began to hate football. I just did not connect with this coach. And this passion that I loved for the game of football had now kind of turned into just a scorn and a hatred of it based on just how I felt about this coach and and interacting with him. And so all summer, I was um, like supposed to be training and practicing and make sure you're throwing the ball, Daniel, you know, getting ready for training camp. And I I did not want to play. And I remember all summer praying to like not play football. God, just give me a sign. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. And no sign. And I remember the night before I got on the plane, I actually picked up the football. I was like, oh yeah, I was supposed to throw this. Threw it a few times. And then I got on the plane the next day. I did not want to play. And I knew that as soon as training camp started, I wasn't going to quit. I just didn't want to do that. And so I was praying and praying and praying. The night before, I was screaming into my pillow, being so distressed. I did not want to be there. I did not want to go through with this season of football, this game that I hated, just this resentment and this emotional pain that it brought me, and emotional stress and, and physical pain in my body. And I just, I was so done. I was so done. And I wonder if you've ever been in something like that. You've been screaming into your pillow with tears, asking for God to deliver you in that intense type of way. And this is what you see Jesus doing. Which, by the way, doesn't that encourage you, the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, can do that to the Father and gives us permission to do that? That's a beautiful thing that we see here. We find Jesus just completely destroyed. We see the humanity of Jesus, and he needs his friends to be with him. But look, the verse continues, verse 40. Then he returned to see his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men just keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch, right? Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's calling on, to his, he's calling on his disciples to be with him. And what do they do? They fail him. They fall asleep on him. They get lazy. They get lethargic. D.A. Carson, a theologian, writes this. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The truth of this principle is illustrated by the disciples, who with far less at stake than Jesus cannot stay awake and pray. Even Christ's closest followers, followers may want to obey him, but they find their bodies and or sinful human natures unable to cooperate. And how many times has that happened to us in the church? If you've maybe grown up in the church, maybe you've heard the stories of the Bible a lot. And you're used to it all, and you've grown up uh, knowing uh, the, the, the gospel, or what you thought was the gospel. And you grow up, and you sit through Sunday school, and then you go through middle school, and then you go through high school. And now maybe you're at young adults, and you're thinking, yeah, 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 I believe all this, I believe all this. 
but it's just like lethargic. And you just kind of get a little bit lazy in your study. You're used to the stories, right? Or maybe you've gone off to camp or you went off to like a conference or something and you had a real powerful encounter with God in the worship and he, and he really met you there and you come back completely inspired. I'm gonna read my Bible every day. I'm gonna read my Bible every day. And you do for a while. And you have incredible uh, moments in the word, feeling the Lord's presence on you until it wears off. Until you just kind of fall out of that habit until you just kind of, when's the last time I read my Bible? I don't know. I was reading it a lot, but now I don't even really seem to, to care. That's an easy thing that can happen to all of us. And I think what this text is saying is we actually also betray Christ when we get lazy, when we get lethargic, when we stop kind of pressing into him and just kind of sitting where we are. And it's just easy to just be here and go through the motions. And what does this lead to? Well, it leads to failure. In verse 56, when it all goes down, when it gets bad, all the disciples flee. And I think with three years spent with Jesus, they actually kind of get to a place of just becoming so used to him and so lethargic, lazy, that when the time comes for them to actually be with him, they fall away. You want to betray Jesus? Become lazy. So here's the third one. Trade Jesus for something else. This is the third way that we can betray him, right? We can be overconfident, we can be lazy, or we can actually just trade him for something else. Matthew 26, 47. Or not 47. Here we go. Verse 47 to 56. Peter fails him three times in the, in the passages here. And Jesus, they, they fall asleep on him three times. So this, this happened multiple times, and Jesus eventually comes to this point where he says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He says it's time for it to happen. And so verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. Now, I thought Judas was with Jesus in the garden, but it's like he snuck away. Judas arrives. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Go at once to Jesus, Judas said. Greetings, Rabbi. And kissed him. And then Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the ear of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, this is Peter. Remember the revolution? It's happening. Peter p picks out the sword, starts the revolution, runs out of guys. like, you're not taking my Jesus. Cuts off his ear. What does it say? Put back your sword. Put it back in its place, Jesus said to him. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, I'm leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords, or am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all... 
the disciples deserted and fled. Now, why do they flee? I want to I draw your attention to Judas' betrayal. This is, I'm taking this from Romans chapter 1. Verse 21 to 23, it says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. What Paul's communicating in Romans, he's saying, there are people who take the glory of God, who see it, and actually exchange that for human pleasures and, and to, for the worship of idols, for idolatry, for, for whatever that idol is. For, for Judas, this is 30 pieces of silver. Do you know how much that's worth today, 30 pieces of silver? It's about $3,500 on the high end, of, if they're correct about what, what that is, about $3,500. $500. A man that you've been with for three years, and you're going to trade him for money that won't even pay half of your tuition. <laughs> like, you can't buy a Honda Civic for that. Reliable car, Honda Civic. Not a lot of money. The point here that I think the text is making is, if you don't do the other two, the other way you can actually betray Jesus is if you just have an idol in the way that you've now chosen to put there, and that becomes the source of your affections and the source of your love. And at every moment, each one of us, because we are, yes, if you're a Christian, we are saved, there are still idols and there's still the, the, these, these things that creep back into our lives that call for our attention and actually sometimes we go to them. What are some of these idols? I can think of a couple. How about money? The idol of money. If I were to look at your giving statements here at the church... If I went up to Chrissy, who runs all of our statements there, I looked up and looked up your name, what would I find? If I looked up how much you were giving to God in worship, what would I see? Yeah, but Daniel, I'm a student. I don't have a lot of money. Like, I, I'm just starting out. I don't have a lot of money. I'm trying to put that back into my business. I'm trying to, you know, one day I'm going to give a lot of money, but like right now I can't do that. If I were to look at your statement, what would I see? It's not about the amount, what would I see? Or are you holding on to that money for something else? Do you not trust God with that money? Has money become your idol? Or how about your self-image? How you portray yourself in the world? How you portray yourself online? If I were to look at how, how you portray yourself, what does that say about you? And, and, and as you think about the way you want to portray yourself and you're looking at, at other people's lifestyles, what, what are you chasing? What's that idol there? Trying to, trying to be better than everyone, trying to see like you have it all together. What's the idol there in our lives? Every single one of us has idols that are calling at us for attention. And if you trade Jesus for these idols, they, they're never going to satisfy you. That's what you see here, is these idols will never satisfy you. As the story goes on, what does Judas do? He tries to return the money out of his guilt. Realizing what he does, he tries to return the money because he, he, he feels terrible about what he's done. And the, the Pharisees say, you keep it. We don't want it. We got Jesus, and we're going to kill him. It'll always leave you empty. 
if, 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 if money's your idol, it'll never satisfy you. It'll always leave you void and empty because you'll never have enough. You will never have enough money to, to satisfy that need. You're going to always want the next biggest thing, and you're going to work and work and work and destroy all your relationships so you can make that money rather than trusting that God is actually the one who gives the money and we just steward it. If your idol is your self-image, right, based on these standards that you have for yourself, okay, or if you're living to other people's standards, okay, imagine this. If you live up to those standards, you'll be enormously confident, but you will not be humble. And if you don't live up to these standards, you will not be confident, you will be very humbled. Only in Christ, as a Christian, can you be both. Because we realize that every moment, I'm a sinner, I'm not as good as I ought to be, but also I'm saved by grace. And he declares me righteous. And so these idols begin to fall apart. Those won't satisfy you. Jesus will satisfy you when you think about that. When you think about the idol in your life, make a decision to change it, to, to turn away from it. And that might hurt, actually. It might sting. But by God's grace, we can turn away from it. There's the last verse in that, in that song that illustrates this, that I mentioned, the U2 song. Judas, uh, this is him again saying Judas. He says, Bono writes, and Bono, I know you're listening. He says, in my dream, I was drowning my sorrows, but my sorrows, they learned to swim, surrounding me, going down on me, spilling over the brim. Waves of regret and waves of joy, I reached out for the one I tried to destroy. Right, he tries to come back. He try, but he doesn't. And you said you'd wait till the end of the world. And ultimately what happens to Judas is he regrets his decision and he's so sorrowful and, and distraught, Judas ends up taking his own life, as, as is told in the scriptures. Those idols, as you, as you think about betraying Jesus, just know that it, it never will satisfy you, that you're gonna be stuck in this place of never quite feeling fully fulfilled and satisfied. And you'll betray Christ in it and you'll ultimately, um, you'll destroy your life. It will run you into the ground, and you will find yourself at rock bottom. So look, we betray Christ in our overconfidence. That can happen. We betray Christ in our laziness. That can happen. We betray Christ with idols. That can happen. That's the fight that we're all in. Every single one of us at every moment is in one of these fights. We have the tendency to do this. All these things. And yet, Jesus dies for us. Jesus takes the penalty of sin for us. He does that knowing that we would actually betray him. Do you know this whole time as they're leading up to this, Jesus is predicting that these disciples are going to betray him? And yet, he still goes and dies for them. And he knows how bad it's going to be. He, he knows the betrayal's coming. He knows that that's going to be emotionally painful. I've invested in these people for three years. They're all going to run away. And then I'm going to have my body completely mutilated and destroyed. Feel pain I've never felt before in the most excruciating way that, I mean, that's where they get the word crucifixion is from excruciating. It was meant to be painful. And that's what the Romans, they were the best at it. That's why they, they could dominate the world was through fear and, and just they could kill people better than anyone. Jesus is now going to face that fate. And he does it out of love 
and out of the plan of the Father. He knows, one commentator writes, Jesus would be one with sinners in his death and would experience the death that is due to sinners. And it seems that it was that that brought about the tremendous disturbance of the spirit that Matthew records. Um, On one of my YouTube binges, I went watching a video of inmates on death row. Uh, Someplace in the United States, they still have the death penalty. And these last moments of these guys' lives before they end up getting the lethal injection. And you can imagine just looking at the calendar every single day. You're checking off the days, and all of a sudden they say, hey, what do you want for your last meal? Because they cook you an individual meal. And what's that like? You eat that last meal, and then you know, I mean, you're counting the minutes until you go and die. And as Jesus is weeping in the garden and praying to the Father, he's doing that. He's counting those minutes. He knows what's coming. Why does he do it? Out of love for you and me? One of the gospel writers, Luke, he writes this, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is called hematohydrosis. It's a condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood. It occurs under conditions of extreme and physical and emotional stress. I saw some of the photos of this, and it looks literally like sweat. But instead of wiping your face of sweat, it would actually be all red because it's blood. That's the emotional and and, and pain that Jesus is going through in this moment as he's leading up to his death. He knows his disciples are going to flee, and he knows we will flee him as well. And yet, he goes through with it for us. He dies for us. He faces, he goes, hangs on a cross for us, is whipped for us. And the disciples couldn't comprehend this. Right? They, they keep disagreeing and saying, this is not going to happen. Jesus, this is not going to happen. You're not going to go this way. And when it happens and they see Jesus die, I mean, I just, I kind of feel for them in a sense because not only do they see their, one of their closest friends die, who, by the way, they just fled and, and betrayed, they watch their entire worldview fall apart. They don't even have a category for that. They, they expected, their whole lives were built upon this new Messiah coming to deliver people. And philosophically speaking, their entire way of life has just fallen apart. And they are completely lost. Where do you go after this? They did not see, they couldn't see it. Now, I put up a photo here of a FedEx truck. Have you ever noticed in between the E and the X is an arrow? I, when I was first shown this, I, uh, I was like, I couldn't unsee it. Now every time a FedEx truck comes by, you're going to think of the sermon, and you're going to think of Bono, and you're going to think of Judas. But there's your, uh, there's your thing you can't unsee. When Jesus comes back and declares this new way, he says, I am the way, all the things click, and it makes sense. And you can't, they, they can't unsee it. And what happens? Once this revelation happens, once they receive the Holy Spirit, every single disciple goes to their death for Christ. They are killed. They're mutilated. Peter himself, Jesus predicts and tells him, he says, you're going you're gonna to die on a cross as well. And what happens is Peter actually says, I'm not worthy to die in that way. And, and he hangs on the cross upside down, as history would tell us. Jesus does this for us out of 
a lot. He says there's a, there's a new way that has been made that, that is happening, that is going through. And so as we're talking about this betrayal that happens and how we betray him, Jesus is pointing us and saying, remember what happens in three days after I die is I come back and I create a new way. Oh, thank you, water. I'm creating a new way for you. And so that's why we worship him, right? Because of that. By, through Jesus now, we can actually live in accordance with him. And when we fail, we come back to him in repentance. And so look, here's another bonus betrayal. I think we, betrayal, we betray Jesus when we don't remember him. How do we remember Jesus in the church? Through communion. And so what we're going to do is, in a few moments, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to remember the betrayal that took place back then and the betrayal that we actually have done to him. But we're going to remember the fact that he was still faithful. He still went through with his death. And because of his resurrection, we can now follow Christ uh, forevermore. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for this text of scripture that shows us ultimately that we cannot live up to who you are. But Lord, thank you for grace and thank you for the work of Christ. You, you went to the death for us. And we will praise you for that. And so now as we take communion, now as we worship, would, you, would, your, would, would our worship be pleasing to you? Would you find us faithful in that, Lord? And the blind spots that we have, would you reveal that to us, convict us, so now we can follow you forevermore. We love you and we thank you. We praise your name. And everyone said, amen.